On January 1st, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, effectively demanding the freedom of all enslaved persons in rebelling Confederate states. It took more than two years for that proclamation to be delivered and enforced in the state of Texas. On June 19, 1865, a full two and a half years later, Major General Gordon Granger landed on Galveston Island with some 2,000 soldiers and this legally binding declaration of freedom for enslaved black Americans. But there was such resistance to their release that Granger and his men had to march across the state and physically free enslaved black people by military force. And that took about a year. And so it was that in the state of Texas, thousands of free black men, women, and children continued living as slaves, completely unaware of the declaration of their freedom. This tragic history illustrates an important reality for Christians. We don't always live as free as we really are. It is possible to go on in the bondage of legalistic religion as though our freedom has not been purchased and declared by Christ's work on the cross. And that tension is essentially what Paul will address in our passage today in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to give you the main idea and we'll break it down as we go. There's two ways that we'll find in this passage, two ways to hold on to the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. We'll spell out what those are in just a minute. But he's going to show us two ways to live into, to take hold of that freedom that Christ has purchased for us. And the first thing he does is review. He begins with a summary of what he's been saying for the last couple of chapters. And so look at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5, just the first verse. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's been speaking of the freedom that we have in Christ, that he has moved us from the status of a slave in the household to a son, to an heir with Christ, the, the recipient of all of God's blessings. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us, his children, his sons. And we have the freedom to live in that good to live in the, the freedom of being a son of God, welcomed, accepted, loved, delighted in, given all of his riches. And yet, there is this strange inclination in the heart of sinners to move back toward the chains of slavery and to actually prefer the life of keeping the law in an effort to obtain God's blessing. That's what these Galatians have been uh, susceptible to. 
by the false teaching that they've been hearing in their churches. And this is what Paul has been very fiery and passionate about condemning. Reject these false teachings. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this whole tension reminds us or points out to us the reality that we can fail to live in the freedom that we actually have in Christ. There is an objective reality, something that is true of you if you're in Christ. You are a son. You are free. You are freed from the law. You are not bound to obey the, the, some certain religious moral code in order to gain God's approval. You're free from that bondage. That's objectively true if you've trusted in Christ for salvation. And then there's an experiential reality. And here is where we can either live into the good, the freedom of what Christ has purchased, or we can slide again back into a yoke of slavery, as Paul says. And so he's urging them, he's reminding them, here's what's true of you. Christ has set you free. Why did he set you free? For freedom. It was for the sake of freedom that he set you free. He didn't set you free so that you'd go, thanks for that, I prefer the chains. He set you free for freedom that is objectively true of you. Now, you have to stand firm. You have to decide. You have to settle in your heart. I will not live in slavery because I've been freed. We can't lose our salvation, but we can operate as though it's not true. We can live in such a way that we forget that this is the reality that is true of us. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he goes to great length to say that in Christ who was crucified to sin, you have died to sin. And then he concludes that paragraph of objective reality. You have died to sin. Sin has been crucified. You've been crucified to sin. He concludes that by saying, therefore, reckon yourselves dead to sin. There's a difference between being objectively dead to sin and remembering that you're dead to sin and living like it. And so that's what's going on in the lives of the Galatians. They are objectively free, if they're trusting in Christ, but they're choosing slavery. And that is a danger for us as well. And so he begins with this reminder, this summary, and this exhortation. Live free. Hold on to your freedom. Reject the yoke, the slavery. And then the rest of the verses we'll look at today spell out, I think, two ways that we can do that. Number one, the hope of righteousness. One way that we hold to the freedom that Christ has purchased for us is the hope of righteousness. And the second one is the offense of the cross. So those will be the two broad headings if you're taking notes. How do we live free? Number one, the hope of righteousness. Number two, the offense of the cross. Let's look at those in turn. So, verses 2 through 6 are where we find this first one, the hope of righteousness. Let me read for you verses 2 through 6. Follow along in your Bible. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ 
you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. These verses provide a contrast between two ways of life, two systems that you can live by. The first one is under this banner of if you accept circumcision. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you, he says in verse 2. To accept circumcision in this context means adopting a program of self-salvation by obedience to the law. If you adopt this mindset, you're living, you're living under the operating system of the law. If you keep the law, you earn God's blessing. That's how the law system works. When he says, if you accept circumcision, he's not really speaking about circumcision in itself, as though circumcision is a bad thing. Obviously, it was a part of the covenant that God made with Israel. It was a sign and symbol of that covenant. Paul you may remember, uh, uh, has Timothy circumcised as a missionary strategy when he's trying to reach Jewish people. He doesn't want that to be a barrier, so he has Timothy circumcised before he takes them into that context. So circumcision itself cannot be wicked. It's not a bad thing. So when he says, if you accept circumcision, he's not so much talking about the issue itself, the practice of circumcision. He's talking about this as sort of a a catch-all for life under the law. Right? Submission to the system of, if I obey the law, I earn God's blessing. That's the system that he's rejecting. And he's summarizing that by saying, if you accept circumcision, if you adopt this mindset, if you live that way of life, he says, Christ is of no advantage to you. In other words, you make Christ's life, death, and resurrection irrelevant to you. If you are going to attempt to earn your salvation by a keeping of the law, you're essentially saying to Jesus, I don't really need you. I got this covered. Or maybe, thanks for the help, but I'll take it from here. You're saying to Jesus, I don't need your life, death, and resurrection on my behalf. That isn't what's going to save me. And then he gives us a reminder, I say again, so he's, been, he's covered this territory already, but he's just going to remind you, any man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. So there we go again with the curse of the law. The curse of the law is if you break any part of the law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. So if you're going to try to earn your place with God by law keeping, you'd better get it right. There's no margin for error. You've got to keep all of the law if you're going to keep it. But of course, nobody can do that. We as sinners are not able to keep the whole law. And so this leads him to the conclusion of verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And there's a bit of a play on words here because the, the... ritual of circumcision is a severing of the flesh. 
And so he essentially says, if you accept this severing of the flesh as the way to make yourself right with God, then your soul is severed from Christ himself. If you live in this system, this law-based operating system, you are removing yourself from Christ. You're saying, I don't need him. That is not the way I'm going to live. I'm not going to receive and accept what he did on my account. I'm going to do it myself. And then he says, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Not, you were saved and now you're not saved anymore. Not, you used to be in the grip of grace, but now grace has sort of lost its hold on you and you've slipped through the cracks and now you've, you're, you're no longer saved. Rather, You've abandoned the gospel's operating system, which is fueled by grace. And you've adopted a law-based operating system. It's like you're running on completely different tracks. You've fallen away from the system of the gospel, which is all about grace, what God graciously gives, how he blesses, how he, what he imparts to you through faith. You've turned aside from that, pushed that away, and said, no, I'm going to live under this operating system, run on these rails that say, if I keep the law, if I'm religious enough, I earn my place with God. I can do this myself, like a toddler do it myself. That's kind of the attitude. So if you would justify yourself, in other words, if, if you would attempt to, if you desire to, if you think you will justify yourself by the law, you have rejected the whole system of the gospel. You have pushed grace aside. You have severed yourself from Christ. You're choosing a totally different way of life. How many of us, without realizing it, are essentially saying to Jesus, what you did for me wasn't quite enough? Lord, thank you for the perfect obedience you carried out on my behalf, but I'm going to add my own record of church attendance and generous giving just in case. Lord, thank you for the nails and the spear and the, the insults and the agony you endured on the cross, but I'm going to add my own suffering and anxieties to the mix to make sure you know how serious I am about following you. Lord, thank you for your free acceptance and love for me, but I'm going to work a little harder. Stay at the office a little longer. Or train these kids a little more rigidly so that you'll be impressed by the productivity in my life. Friends, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We as sinners need this exhortation. That's one way of life, right, in this contrast. That is one way of life, law-based righteousness, a program of self-salvation, which makes Christ's work irrelevant and actually separates you from him altogether. Well, what's the alternative? And this is where we get to the actual point that I want to make in this passage, the hope of righteousness. The point is grace. The alternative is the way of grace. So he said at the end of verse 4, 
if you would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And then I think verse 5 sort of zooms in on that, expands that. Here's what grace means in contrast to the keeping of the law for the earning of your standing. Verse 5, he says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. There's a lot going on in that little verse. I want you to notice briefly four things about the waiting that he speaks of here. We are waiting. That's the core of this. We wait. So there's not something to to do. There's something to, to wait on. Four things about the waiting in this verse. Number one, our waiting depends on the Spirit's power. Right? It is through the Spirit, he says, that we are waiting. Through the Spirit. He empowers us. He enables us to fix our hope on what is to come. We need his strength. We need his energy. We need his mercy. And it is the Spirit of God indwelling us that empowers us to wait. Number two, our waiting is fueled by faith. Right? He says, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait. That is, we trust that God's promises will come to pass. We believe that it's true. If he says he will give, we trust that he will give. If he says blessing is coming, we simply believe that that blessing will come and we wait. It's a faith-fueled waiting, not a curious waiting, not an anxious waiting, not a wondering waiting. I wonder if he's really going to come through on what he said. It's a faith-fueled waiting. Number three, our waiting is patient and earnest. And I'm drawing, I'm trying to draw out the meaning of that phrase, eagerly awaiting, which itself is from one Greek word. We are eagerly waiting. What does that mean? I think it means there's, there's, a, there's a patience to it. There's an earnestness to this. We long for what it is that he's going to give us. We're trusting that he's going to give it to us. So we're willing to wait, but we wait with longing. We wait with anticipation. And then the fourth thing, our waiting is for final salvation. Our waiting is for final salvation. And I see that wrapped up in this little phrase, the hope of righteousness. Through the Spirit's power, by faith, we are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. We use hope in some different ways. And I would say more often than not, in our context, in our day, when we talk about hoping for something, we're more talking about an emotion, we're talking about a sort of a desire for something to come about that we may or may not be sure is actually going to come about. But that's not how the Bible uses hope. And that's not what Paul has in mind here when he says that we are waiting for hope. It's not we're waiting until we feel a little bit more hopeful about something. It means that we are waiting on something that we're sure about. It is something settled that is the confident expectation of an outcome that we know is settled. The future reward that he's promised is certain. It's not wishful thinking. Hope this works out. It's confidence. Confidence that what God has said he will do. Confidence that what God has promised he will give. What is that hope? What is the tangible 
settled gift that he's promised, it's righteousness. The hope of what? The hope of righteousness. And that word is the noun form of the adjective for justified. So back in chapter 2, when Paul said that we are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, he used this word to, to be made righteous. Righteous is at the base of that justified, to be made just. And so he says we are justified by faith in Christ means you are declared to be righteous. And it's that same word, just in the noun form, that he says we're waiting for. We are waiting to receive the settled hope of righteousness. That is our justifiedness, our justification in a sense. And so the righteousness that we're eagerly awaiting is the final declaration of our justification before God when we stand before him on judgment day. I think Paul is pointing us way past the bumps and hills and trials of this life to a certain future glory, a grace that will be given, namely, when you stand in the presence of holy God, if you are in Christ, you will be righteous. You will be declared righteous. You will be vindicated before God on the final day when you stand before his throne without spot or blemish or any such thing. As the old hymn says, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. And then we envision this scene, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. This is the hope, the settled confidence, the certain promise that he's given to us. We experience that now. It is a current reality that we're declared righteous, but we still live in this tension, don't we? We're declared righteous, but we kind of know we're not really all the way righteous to the core of our beings. I still got some stuff going on in my mind and in my heart that ain't quite righteous. I think we would all say the same thing if we were honest. So we are declared righteous, but there's a day coming when we will actually experience the fullness of that righteousness. And it won't be just a declaration or a way that God kind of overlooks something about us. It will actually transform our nature. And we will be truly blameless, righteous before holy God. Can you even imagine standing before holy God right now and him looking into your heart and knowing your thoughts and knowing your history of everything you've done and saying, you are righteous. That is the settled hope, the confident reality that he has promised to us. And we believe confidently with patience and earnestness by the Spirit's power that that will actually be our experience on Judgment Day. Those who are in Christ Jesus have nothing to fear at the judgment seat of Christ. I hope you know that. You will be vindicated. You will be honored. You will receive your share in the glory of Christ himself. 
made righteous by his life and death and resurrection. So one way that we hold on to the the freedom that Christ has purchased for us is to actually set our eyes, our minds, our hearts on something way in the future. Might not be way in the future. We don't know. Could be tonight. Could be a billion years from now. We have no idea. Only God knows. But it will surely come. And it is worth waiting for with eagerness, with earnestness. And this is the gospel's operating system, to to contrast it again to that operating system of law, where if I obey the law, I earn God's blessing. The gospel operates on a totally different system, and it's fueled by grace. Instead of striving, we hope. Instead of working, we wait. And grace is the fuel of the system because it is God's to give and it's ours to wait and receive. You don't bring stuff to the table when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your standing with God. Thanks for that, Jesus. Appreciate you did all that. But let me pile up for you all of my good deeds and my efforts to look at all the money I gave. Nobody's going to do that. But you won't need to. Because Christ's righteousness for you will be given. It will be enough. Tim Keller says, No one else, no secular person, no follower of any other religion, can look at their future like this. Non-religious people have no idea where they'll be a million years from now. And religious people without the gospel are anxious about where they'll be and cannot relax or look forward to it with eagerness. The certainty of our future with God is a fruit of the gospel. This is a unique hope that Christians have. We should live in the light of it. We should think upon it, meditate on it, reflect on it. I used to hear people say all the time that, uh, you know, that some Christians were so heavenly-minded they were of no earthly good. I don't buy that. I think the more heavenly-minded you are, the more earthly good you'll be. I think the more confident we are that what's coming for us is glory and joy and righteousness beyond anything we could envision or imagine, the more confident we are about that, the more free we are to love and to serve and to give and to be generous and to sacrifice. Because who cares about all this? It's going away. I've got glory coming. So we take hold of our freedom in Christ through the hope of righteousness. The second way he gives us that we hold on to our freedom of Christ is found in verses 7 through 12. Let's read those now. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's an interesting verse, isn't it? I don't think 
I can think of another biblical writer in any instance that gets quite that graphic or fiery. Paul is mad. He is mad. The second way we take hold of the freedom we have in Christ is through the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. He begins with this metaphor of running. Running a race. You, you were running well. Right? You had started, you had received the gospel by the power of the Spirit. You had believed in Christ. You had begun your life in Him. You had been running well, but somebody got in your way. Somebody bumped you off the course. Somebody's hindered your race. Who has hindered you, he says. They've been hindered by false teaching. And so the shackles of slavery have been reconnected, as it were, to their ankles and to their wrists. It's hard to run when your feet and hands are bound in chains, I imagine. I never really tried it. And so he asked this rhetorical question, who hindered you? He has an idea, right? He obviously has in mind those who are spreading false teaching in the churches. He has several strong indictments for them and warnings for the church regarding false teaching. So here's a few things we should keep in mind about false teaching that gets Christians off course. Number one, false teaching is not from God. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Who is it that calls? It's God. God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, drawing sinners to himself. It is not from him who calls you that this persuasion comes. And I think by implication, he means it comes from the devil. I think it is a demonic, wicked power at work in the false teaching. You've been led astray. Your minds have been captured by, yes, the words coming out of the mouth of these human false teachers, but there's demonic power behind that. I think that's true even today. In false teaching that draws people away from Christ, the devil is at work. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that that the, the prince of the power of the air, which is a big, fancy, funny name for Satan, is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is actively discipling people away from Christ. That's what he's doing. And he does it in part through false teaching, sometimes from the stage of a church, sometimes from somebody who claims to be speaking for Jesus. False teaching is not from God. Number two, false teaching spreads like leaven. When he says a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. He's talking about baking and how you put a little bit of yeast into the dough and it would make the whole thing rise. And in the same way, false teaching, just a little bit of it, spreads in the church. Might have just been one teacher. To begin with, we don't know. But those ideas have begun to take root. And now people are talking to their neighbors about it. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so said? He said Paul didn't give us the whole story. He said Paul is holding out on us. We actually got to become more Jewish. And the idea spreads. And the whole church is corrupted by the presence of this false teaching and the spread of this false teaching. False teaching almost never stays in one place. It likes to move around. It likes to find new hosts, if you will. It spreads. And so... We have to be vigilant about it. We have to be aware of it. We have to watch for it. We have to know how to spot it. 
Third and final thing I observe is that false teachers will be judged by God. False teachers will be judged. He says, I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. That's good. Maybe that's generous to the Galatians, but he seems confident that this exhortation and this letter will drive them back toward the truth. He says, I have confidence you will take no other view. And what else is he confident of? The one who is troubling you, namely these false teachers, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. What penalty is that? Divine judgment from a very angry God who has some very strong words to say to spiritual leaders who do not feed his people with truth. They will be judged. Now, I think this is a good place to, to make note, to talk a little bit about that really fiery verse at the end of this passage. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, there's a, a graphic play on words going on here. Those who are so concerned about circumcision, he's basically saying, why don't they just go the whole way and cut the rest of it off while they're at it? That's kind of what he's saying. That's pretty gruesome. And this kind of invocation of violence upon another probably strikes us as a little bit out of place, perhaps out of character for a minister of the gospel, right? Paul, you should... You should calm down. You should be more winsome with your words, right? But briefly consider a few things. Number one, the Psalter, that is the book of Psalms, is peppered with what are known as imprecatory psalms. An imprecation is a prayer for judgment on the wicked. And there's a bunch of those. If you read through the psalm book, you will find them. Songs of worship intended for the community of God's people to sing together, songs of worship that pronounce and actually pray for divine judgment upon God's enemies. One example is Psalm 109, verses 9 and 10, and that psalm say this, may his children, speaking of an enemy of David, David wrote this, the psalm, he's speaking of some enemy who is after him, who's calling him a liar, who's seeking his throne. He says, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. That's not very nice. That's not a very kind thing to pray for. But it appears that God can stomach and may at times even delight in our emotionally charged distaste for the wicked and their ways. The Psalms give us a category for that. A second thing to consider, Jesus reserved his strongest words and fiercest action for religious leaders who led his people astray. To the ones who would cause one of his little ones to stumble, he says it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. I would rather that guy drown and be dead, then lead one of my people astray. The only scene in the Gospels where Jesus kind of loses his cool, it seems, and flies around the temple courtyard with a whip in his hand, happens because salesmen had set up shop in the temple and profaned its divine purpose as a house of prayer for the nations. That set Jesus off. 
And John, in, in giving us that story, cites Psalm 69.9, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. When's the last time you were consumed with zeal for the house of God? You were driven with a burning passion for God's honor. You were driven to rage and anger and hatred even for those who belittle, demean, and blaspheme the name of our holy God. It's a fitting response, a biblical response. So perhaps Paul's in pretty good company when he wishes self-inflicted injury upon the church leaders in Galatia who have influenced these young Christians to abandon the true gospel to submit again to a yoke of slavery. John Stott, the late Anglican minister, said, I venture to say that if we were as concerned for God's church and God's word as Paul was, we too would wish that false teachers might cease from the land. When's the last time you prayed that false teaching would be removed from Christ's church? So, negatively, false teaching will hinder us in our race. It will keep us from living in freedom. But how does he state this positively? In order to experience the freedom that Christ purchased, we must embrace the offense of the cross. We must embrace the offense of the cross. He said, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Now, of course, he's not preaching circumcision, which is his point. If he were, if he were preaching the same message, oh, if you want to uh, be right with God, you've got to follow these Jewish laws. If he were, then he wouldn't be troubled by these false teachers in Galatia, right? Because they would be in agreement. And he wouldn't be persecuted by Judaizers in the various towns where he preaches because they would accept his message. But he's not preaching circumcision. That is, in order for Gentiles to be acceptable to God, they must observe Jewish law in addition to trusting Christ. That's not Paul's message. That's not what he's preaching. If he were, hypothetically, he says, he would have removed the offense of the cross. There'd be no reason for anybody to give me a hard time because I've taken the sting out of the message by saying, oh yeah, sure, go be more like uh, th this Jewish group that's, that's talking to you, right? I'd be removing the, the sting from, from the message. Which means that the offense of the cross is a necessary feature of the gospel preaching. So what does that mean? What is the offense of the cross all about? Well, Paul said back in Galatians 1 verse 10 that he was no longer seeking to please man, but to serve Christ. And in the very next verse, chapter 1 verse 11, he says that the gospel he preaches is not man's gospel, but God's. And we know it's not man's gospel because it's not a man-friendly message. Here is what comprises the offense of the cross, the preaching of Paul. Number one, you are a sinner. You are inherently flawed at the core of your being. I don't think that's ever been a popular message, but that won't get you very far today. Put that on Twitter and see what happens. There was nothing wrong with me. The highest truth, the highest good, the highest glory of any human being is to discover themselves and express themselves. That's, and whatever is there is right and good and beautiful. 
The, the message of the cross says, nah, you are inherently flawed at the core of your being. And because of that, number two, you're under God's wrath. That is, you deserve to be judged eternally. You're so flawed that God can't stand to be with you. He will judge you in anger. Number three, you are helpless. You can't do anything to save yourself from this predicament. You're under the wrath of God. It is surely coming, and you can't do anything about it. What? But I'm, but I'm independent. I'm an American. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. All I need is opportunity, right? Number four, your salvation required the bloody death of the only truly innocent man who ever lived. You were such a broken mess that the only really innocent man who ever lived had to die for you. That's what it took. Number five, you must believe historical and theological claims that, frankly, sound a little ridiculous. Right? Jesus is one person with two natures, one human, one divine. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus will return from heaven and establish a worldwide kingdom where he will reign forever. This stuff sounds a little weird. But this is all inherent to the message of the cross. If you will be saved, you must acknowledge, I am a sinner. I am under God's wrath. I cannot save myself. Jesus died in my place to cover my sins and to take my penalty. And one day, he's returning to set up an eternal kingdom. And he's invited me to be a part of it if I'll trust in him. That's the message of the cross. And that's not a popular word. Sinners don't like to hear it. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. In order to enjoy the freedom that Christ purchased for us, freedom from law-based righteousness, from adding our own good works to faith in Christ, we must keep a firm grasp on right gospel teaching that puts the offense of the cross front and center. We need to remember and rehearse the gospel to ourselves and to one another on a regular basis. This, by the way, is the best way to spot false teaching, is by being so well-versed in the real gospel that when a fake one comes along, you recognize it immediately. Get that out. It's fitting that Paul uses the metaphor of running a race here. The goal in a race is to persevere to the finish line. And in the same way, the goal of the Christian life is to hold fast to the truth until that final day when we stand before him face to face. And that's what the church is for. We need each other's help to persevere in faith to the end. Jesus knew we'd never make it through this treacherous course by ourselves, and so he's given us one another that we might stand firm together. Pray for our church to hold fast to the true gospel, to stand on the word of God. Pray for me and anyone else who stands in this pulpit to faithfully preach Christ. 
Take a quick look around the room. Make note of who's sitting near you or down the, the row from you. And make note, you need these people to help you make it safely to heaven. We need one another. It's not optional. Look for opportunities to minister God's word to one another, to encourage each other, to hold on to hope, to keep believing the truth, even in the midst of doubts and sufferings of various kinds, which we all will face. Spend time together outside the church's weekly gatherings to read the Bible and pray. Send short messages, texts, and emails to each other with Bible verses or words of affirmation and exhortation. Letting people know you're lifting them up to the Lord in prayer. Serve other members of the church, even those outside of your regular friend group, with babysitting, lawn care, meals, transportation, or just plain company. We need one another. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Our emancipation from sin and death has been fully accomplished, decisively declared, and purchased by Christ. We've been delivered from the curse of the law and set free to obey the truth of the gospel. We've been adopted into God's family, no longer slaves, but sons and fellow heirs with Christ of all that's rightfully his. May the Lord give us grace to take hold of that freedom and hold on tight to the end. Let's pray together.